Good morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 8, if you would like to make your copy of Scripture ready. Luke chapter 8. As you're turning there, um, I have to confess, as a kid, I once had an unfortunate haircutting experience that led to an unfortunate haircut, that led to an unfortunate experience in a classroom where I wanted to walk in very quietly and just sit in my misery. Um, but there was a very loud individual who wanted to call a lot of attention to my misery and announce. Um, and it was just one of those moments where it was like, couldn't we just stay quiet about this? Uh, that was embarrassing. Have you experienced a moment in your life where something was just not what you wanted it to be, and someone decided, instead of just letting you just kind of like get through it, they instead called a lot of attention to it and just made it that much worse for you? No one else? Okay, right, thank you. <laughs> this is one of those moments for me, apparently. Um, but I think, I think, I don't know, but I think that you probably can relate. That there are moments where you just really want to, to kind of fly under the radar, and yet someone calls attention, and we're going to see that today. Because um, what if that was actually good for you? And what if Jesus did that to you in a moment? Could you imagine Jesus doing that to you? Like something really embarrassing for you, and then Jesus, and everything you've heard about who Jesus is, he calls attention to it and makes it that much more public and embarrassing for you. Um, so last week, we, we looked at Jesus in Nazareth, and Jesus was in his hometown. This is where he was brought up, and um, we saw the, the beauty and the tragedy and him being rejected by his own hometown. And so they, they brought him up to a cliff, and they're ready to throw him off, and yet he just walks through the crowd and goes on his own way. And that is after he has read an excerpt from the, the scroll of Isaiah, the book that we would call the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet. And so he read from chapter 61 this excerpt, and so he reads this, it makes these claims, and then he makes this really wild claim where he says, today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And so we said that's actually a summary of all of what he is here for. His mission is expressed in this statement that the prophet Isaiah recorded so long ago, and then Jesus reads that. And so I'm gonna read this again for you. This is what he says. Jesus says this, quoting Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he announces that the scripture has been fulfilled as they listened. He's telling us his explicit ministry, his mission, why he is here. He says, this is why I have come and so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're gonna look at each of these claims in this and then look into Jesus' ministry and see how he fulfilled this, what it looked like for him to carry this out. And all of that, we wanna say from the get-go, is all ultimately in the picture of what happened at Nazareth, that he was rejected. They wanted to kill him. And ultimately, Jesus fulfills all of this, becoming the Messiah, becoming our salvation, our rescuer. He becomes our rescuer by dying by being ultimately rejected by his own, being killed by his own creation. But he laid down his life willingly so that we would not have to face the just wrath that is due to us. Um, he is gracious and loving. And so um, today, I want us to focus on that first claim in it. He has been anointed to preach good news to the poor. So what does it look like in Jesus' ministry to preach good news to the poor? And so if you are in Luke chapter 8, um, we're going to be starting in verse 40. So quite a ways into the chapter. 
This is happening on the heels of Jesus and his disciples. Um, They have become quite popular. Jesus was already getting kind of popular at the point when he went to Nazareth, but now he is very popular. Where he goes, large crowds will gather. And so here's Jesus. He's just gone to the Gerasenes region, which was across the lake, and he healed a demoniac. So there's a famous story there, and Jesus comes back now. And so he has arrived starting in verse 40. Luke records, he says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. So Jesus is quite popular. There's a crowd waiting for him. As his boat comes back, he's come across the lake again. This crowd receives Jesus, and now everyone wants to be around this guy. You want to hear what he has to say. You want to see the things he's doing. You've heard of these miracles, all this crazy stuff that's happening. Is this truly the one? He says he's the one. And so the crowd receives Jesus. They're all pressing in. The term that Luke uses there, that's, that's not just like, oh, there's this nice, peaceful crowd. That's like, they're all trying to get at him. There are a lot of people and they're all pressing in. And so think like just a couple months ago, you remember the tragedies in Texas with the music festival and how a lot of people actually died because people got so excited and there's people gathered by the thousands. The crowd starts to surge and press in and the crowd takes on a life of its own and people are getting crushed. And so you imagine there's this massive crowd welcoming Jesus and they're all trying to get close to him. And so the hustle, the bustle, it's loud. All these people trying to shout, let their voice be heard. Everybody wants to be near Jesus. There's a massive crowd and Jesus is trying to make his way. But this guy shows up who's the leader of the synagogue, Jairus. And he comes before Jesus and falls to his knees. Like, there's no getting around me. You can't push. Just hear me out. And he begs Jesus, please come to my house. My only daughter, she's 12 years old. She's dying. And so Jesus agrees. And now he's making his way with this giant crowd pressing around. Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house because this daughter is dying. And now watch what happens in verse 43. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who has spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. So remember, massive crowd, but here's this lady who snakes her way through. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. And so um, we don't know exactly what the ailment is, but it seems quite obvious this is a female bleeding. Um, And you know what that means. But this is beyond what is a normal monthly cycle. For 12 years now, she has been bleeding. She has been bleeding. And so this woman bleeding for 12 years, um, there's actually law pertaining to this. When a woman is bleeding in her cycle or beyond her cycle, Leviticus 15 actually gives law related to this. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 to 31 details how the woman is to be considered unclean during this time. And she is not to be touched. She is not to touch others. And in fact, it goes so far as to say the furniture that she sits on and comes in contact with is unclean. And so there are kind of regulations, so to speak, on how long she needs to stay away before she comes back and is considered clean, how long anything she has touched is unclean. And so all of that is included in the law. That this woman has been unclean now for 12 years. This is not just your week out of the month for a typical female to be considered unclean and have to be careful about who she touches, what she touches and all that. This woman for 12 years 
has been bleeding, has been cut off from regular, regular social fellowship and religious ceremony because she's unclean. And that sounds really awful because it is. But it's easy for us in our day and age to read back into Leviticus and think, wait, God said this about women? Ladies, do you feel a little uneasy about that? You're telling me that something that is natural makes me suddenly unclean and unfit to touch others and things become unclean. I defile them when I touch them. And, and it's easy for us to read that from our modern secular mindset and think like, wow, what? That's, that's really awful, God, that you would say that about women. Um, but you actually need to like, take off the lens of today and see that this is actually really, really kind of God. Because what he's doing, think in the ancient world, you do not have hygienic products like we do have today. So this is not something that you can hide easily. This is not something that you can keep confined and contained in a, in a sanitary sense. And so what Jesus is doing in the law so, so far before the incarnation and in giving the law about women on their cycle and when they're going beyond their cycle and so forth, what he's doing is he's showing the sanctity of life and that this is a way of providing sanitary measures. This is a way of showing that, and this goes the same for guys with nocturnal emissions and other weird things that you can read about in the Old Testament, that any fluid from the body is considered, considered sanctified. It's holy. It's sacred. It's not to be trifled with. And so these laws were meant to show us that life is really important. Your lifeblood, the, the body fluids are really, really important. And so you don't play with them. But regardless, this lady's lived experience now is because of something wrong with her body. For 12 years, she has been suffering from this bleeding, cut off from fellowship and religious life. And let's not ignore the fact that this is embarrassing. This is an embarrassing ailment. That there's, there's blood coming from her constantly. And how do you hide that? How do you... How do you come together with anyone and not feel incredibly self-conscious about the ways that you're trying to hide that. This lady would be so embarrassed. In fact, that's probably why you see a difference here. Do you see the contrast? That Jairus shows up in the middle of this crowd coming to Jesus and he falls on his knees, makes a public spectacle, begging Jesus, my daughter, she's only 12, it's my only daughter, she's dying, will you come heal her? And Jesus, with the whole crowd watching, now sets his trajectory on, I'm going to your house to heal your daughter. We all face death. Every human. It's something we're all gonna face. There's not a lot of shame in us saying that we're facing something that is deadly. This is, this is tragic, and we all understand. We're gonna be supportive. Death, oh, yeah, that's, that's awful. It's the universal enemy of all humanity. We're all facing death. And so there's no shame in coming and asking Jesus, please, my daughter is dying. It's very public. And yet, now on the other side of Jesus, here's this lady sneaking through the crowd. She's coming in full of embarrassment. She does not jump in front of Jesus. Hey, hey, I've been bleeding for 12 years. Can you make this stop? No. The embarrassment, the shame that is brought with this. She quietly comes seeking help instead of just coming and asking. And before we move on, I also don't want you to miss 
What was the first claim of Jesus from Isaiah 61? To preach good news to the poor. And who is this lady? A lady who has spent everything she has on doctors who have actually only made things worse. She is poor. She is broke. She is financially ruined. And here she comes to Jesus for help. In verse 43, the last, or 44, the last part of it, as she is touched the end of his robe, it says instantly her bleeding stopped. She comes sneaking through as she touches just the fringe of his garment, the tip of his robe, and instantly the bleeding stops. In an instant, she's been healed because she has come in contact with the one who changes stories. She has touched Jesus. And she's done so in this secretive way because of all the embarrassment, all the shame that she's bringing to this. She just wants to quietly come by if I can just touch him. And she feels it. She's instantly healed. And now watch what happens. Verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. What? Jesus knows. Jesus knows that she has touched him. She, she has touched him. She's healed. And Jesus knows he stops. Okay, progress has stopped. Jesus is coming with this massive crowd all around, trying to get in, pressing in, hemming him in, pressing against him. All the raucous noise, everything about it. This lady has snuck through and she touches him. She's healed. And Jesus, full stop. Who touched me? And Peter's like, kind of an absurd question, Jesus. <laughs> Everyone's touching you. They all want to touch you. And Jesus is like, no, someone touched me. I felt power come out of me. Peter thinks this is absurd because a lot of people are touching. And I don't want you to miss this. Let this define us as a church. It is so easy to view ministry as viewing a crowd. The work of your life, the work of this church, whatever it is, to always be looking for the crowd. Peter cannot see anything but a crowd in this moment. And yet Jesus sees an individual. Let this be the way that we as a church minister. Let this be the way that we love. As we're not after a big crowd. And that doesn't mean that we don't do things for crowds. This is a crowd right now. But you see the individual. See people. Each person with their own story. That we see individuals. Jesus sees the individual. When Peter is just lost seeing a crowd, Jesus knows, no, there's a story here. There's a person. So verse 46, someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know the power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus explained, this is different. Power is involved, and here she comes, realizing he knows. He's trying to do this quietly. He knows. She comes trembling. Why? Why is she afraid? Remember, all the shame, all the embarrassment, all of this, and now she's found out. But her faith and her healing become public testimony. And so from this story, uh, there are three things that I've wrestled with this week that I want to share with you and I want you to now wrestle with. Um, they, they are simply the touch of Jesus, the spectacle that Jesus created in this moment, and Jesus' command to go. 
So type A personalities, there's your three points. The touch of Jesus first. The touch of Jesus. What is it that is significant about touching or being touched by Jesus? Why include this detail that she came and she touched just the fringe of his garment? Because power is found in him. To touch someone, you have to be close to someone. For him to touch you, for you to touch him, there has to be a close proximity. This is an intimate thing. And where is the power? She's there with Jesus, touching Jesus. Jesus has the power. The power is found in him. So the touch of Jesus shows us where the power is located. Jesus says, no, 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 someone touched me. This was different. I felt power go out from me. There's power in Jesus. There's power for what, though? And maybe one of these is for you right now. There's power for healing, that she is physically healed at the touch of Jesus. Do you know that God has the absolute ability and power to heal you physically? Do you ask him? And notice, that does not mean he's going to every time. It's as he wills, and it is ultimately for his glory, but it is always for our good. But he does not heal us every time we ask. Paul, the apostle, asked repeatedly about a thorn in his flesh, and Jesus responded and said, no, my grace is sufficient. That we can trust and rest in his grace, but it is absolutely okay, and you should ask God to heal you and others. Jesus has the power to heal he also has the power for salvation. What does Jesus say to her? Your faith has saved you. She has already been healed, and now he says, your faith has saved you. This, this idea of being saved goes so far beyond just her physical ailment. This is a spiritual salvation. This is the wrath of God, the consequence of all of your sin, your rebellion against the creator of the cosmos, the way in which you and I still every day decide to live like we are God deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong, not even living up to the own, our own standards we inflict on others. Like this, this is just insane that we, we know we are broken and there's consequence for that. Jesus is saying, you're free. Your faith has saved you. So there's power in Jesus for physical healing. There's power in Jesus for our spiritual salvation, our souls to have everlasting life, to not suffer in hell for all of eternity? There's salvation here and there's purpose? Jesus says, go? You're giving meaning to my life? You're telling me now to go? I've lived for 12 years having to stay away from everybody in shame, embarrassed, and now you're giving me purpose. You're saying to go. You're giving me meaning and then you're giving me peace. It's go in peace. This Jewish idea of shalom, how God created everything to be right, and joyful, everything to be okay, to be at peace. And Jesus is saying, now with great meaning, knowing that you've been physically healed and your soul has been saved, go in peace, live in peace. All of that packed into such a moment as this, at the touch of Jesus. The touch of Jesus showing us where power is found, it is found in him. This is, this is really about intimacy. This is about relationship. You've heard it's kind of cliche at this point. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. But Jesus is emphatically saying, yes, like you must know me. Be close to me, touch me. No, personally, it is salvation in Jesus and that is for her. What saved her? Was it her effort that she got here? No, it was her faith. Your faith has saved you. 
And faith in what? It's faith in Jesus. Too often we, we put the emphasis on faith and forget that faith has no real power in and of itself. Faith is in the object of that. It's the power of the object of our faith. So Jesus has the power. Her faith is in Jesus. That is what saved her. And notice what it says there. It says, your faith saved you. He didn't say, enough faith saved you. It says, your faith saved you. Too often we hear heresy where people say, if you just have enough faith, then God could heal you of this. And there are actually claims constantly happening where people are miraculously healed in a moment and then they lose their healing, so to speak. And people will say, because you didn't have enough faith. And yet, what does scripture show us? It's not enough faith. It's just faith. Because again, the power is actually in the object of your faith. The power is in Jesus. Our salvation itself, the most important thing for us Because all of eternity is at stake. Our salvation, whether we will live united with God based on the righteousness of Christ, his sacrifice, this gospel, this good news, or we will suffer for all of eternity in hell. That comes down to, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Trusting him to have the power to save you. Him to be the one. And also see how personal this is. What does he call her? This woman who has suffered for 12 years, he calls her daughter, which would have actually been very weird in that moment. You've never met this lady. (laughs) She's gross, let's be honest. She's bleeding all the time. She's supposed to warn us that she's unclean. She's not supposed to be in this crowd because she's not supposed to be touching people. You heal her? Okay, that's awesome, that's beautiful. I see the beauty in that story, Jesus. But then you call her daughter? You act like she's part of your family. That Jesus invites us into his family. It's not just, yes, Kevin, great job. Thanks for putting your trust in me. No, it's son, welcome home. You're mine. Jesus calls her daughter. So that's the touch of Jesus. Maybe you need to know the touch of Jesus, so to speak. To know him personally. To have a real relationship with the God of all creation. And the next, the question that is the most burning one for me in reading this story, the spectacle that Jesus created. That here's this lady. It's not her fault that she's suffering in this way. Yet she has to live with the shame, the embarrassment of bleeding constantly for 12 years. She has spent everything she has. So imagine doctor after doctor after doctor now knowing all the details of her all of the embarrassment of being examined and everything else, the different types of treatments that they've tried and all this stuff, she's broke, she's poor, and here she is wanting to just quietly come in, trusting if I can just come touch him, I'll be healed. And she quietly makes her way through, she touches the hem of his garment, she's healed, and then what does Jesus do? He could have just turned and winked. I know. But what does he do? with a massive crowd around, he stops and he calls attention to it. We're not moving on until you own up to it. Who touched me? I know it happened. Can you imagine? She's trembling as she comes forward, realizing she's been found out. Why would Jesus make such a spectacle of this moment when this poor lady, literally poor lady, wanted to just come quietly unnoticed 
and receive her healing. Why did Jesus do this? She's so afraid. The shame of being exposed. Uh, you think about this, like in, in all of our poverty, like you know, a, a wise man who's sitting a couple rows back once told me, you know, as he thinks about finances, he's realized that every time someone thinks that like this is the point where I arrive, you get to that point and it's not quite there. It's just always going up. It's always going up. So everyone in the room right now, wherever you are financially, we all know what it is to feel like, oh, just a little more. But you know, imagine this lady who spent everything she has. She is poor. And she wants to just quietly come in unnoticed. As you get to a point in your poverty where you can't hide it. A lot of poverty, um, you can actually look at different studies on, on the way that people spend their money and so forth. Um, but think about it like this, just very logically and rationally here. Why do we have knockoff brands? Because if you can't afford the real thing, you still want to look like you have the real thing. It's just, just part of what we are, who we are. We don't like to showcase that we're in need. That, that comes with shame and embarrassment. Yet here's Jesus calling attention to it. Why? And so maybe for you, it's not just how you're spending your money, but it's a lot of what if questions that you can resonate with this lady on. The what if. What if they find out? Maybe it's not about money, but think in a spiritual sense, how broke are you? How broke am I? What do we really bring to a perfect and holy God? We are spiritually bankrupt. And so we have these questions of what if they find out? What if the rest of the church knows how much I'm struggling with this sin? What if God doesn't really want me? What if I actually come to God with the mess that is my life? All these what if questions. What if, what if, what if? Here's your answer. This lady comes with nothing. And what does Jesus do? Does he shame her? Get out of here. No. He heals her in every way. He heals her. He gives her everything she needs she gives her, he gives her what she didn't even know she really needed. He restores her. Jesus' power was available and is available to all who come to him in faith. So come poor and broken. But again, what does he do with it? Now everybody watch this. I know what just happened. Who touched me? The, the spectacle. Jesus is forcing the issue. He wants her to confess. He wants her to make this public knowledge. He's forcing it. Why? Because our salvation is not just about us. Our salvation becomes public testimony. It's about God. It's about his glory. And we have to see beyond ourselves. And in fact, to even come into salvation is for us to actually set aside ourselves and trust in God. It's to confess him is Lord. I am no longer Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. And so I would hide from you so many things if I am Lord. But because he is Lord... I'm actually now freed and I'm expected to show you the things that I would want to hide because he is Lord. And so here's the thing. Nobody gets to be just a spectator in the kingdom of God. There is, no, there is no spectator role. There's a time for healing. There's a time for rest. And many of you are in that season where I have told you, it's okay. I just want you to come for a while. Just rest and heal. But even in that, you are not just a spectator. 
You were called to live for the glory of God, to be on mission, to share your story because it is not about you, it is about him. I've told you this before, pet peeve of mine, don't share your testimony with yourself as the glorified focus. Your story is meant to do nothing more than point to his story. Use your testimony as a vehicle to share this glorious God, his gospel. Tell the world about how great he is and that is what Jesus is offering her in this moment. You now get to talk about me. Do you see how he's done that for her? So participate. Don't just rely on the professionals to do the ministry. Actually, my role as a professional, as a pastor, as a paid pastor, is to equip you for the works of service. That really, I am to kind of sit in the back and let you go. And I want you to go, and I'm gonna support you in that. But nobody gets to just be a spectator in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants her to see this. He wants to experience this reality, and so he calls attention to it. And, and, and here's the other beautiful thing that happens here. Um, what Jesus has done is masterfully, he has reversed her social standing. For 12 years now, she's been unclean, not able to work. All that she has, she spent on doctors, and all of the shame that she's lived with. Now Jesus, by making this a public thing, has just reversed her social standing. He has reversed her economic standing. Then now they know she's healed. She can, she can actually do something to earn an income. He has reversed this for her. And do we care like that for others? If we're willing to say things and help people actually turn the trajectory of their life, that spiritually, you can see this as the imago Dei, that spiritually, the image of God has been restored in her. She has received salvation. And yet, practically speaking, the image of God has been restored for her. And do you realize that every human you come in contact with has great worth because they are made in the image of God? And sin has tarnished that, and God is redeeming all that, but we have to see we were made in the image of God. Do you see value in every person you come in contact with? This past week, I was just walking down the trail praying, and as I'm walking by, there's a girl, um, actually she looks like she's probably 20, 30 something, but she clearly had all the markers of Down syndrome and she's walking with her caretaker and the caretaker is walking along and she's on her phone just hammering out whatever she's doing on her phone. But this, this special needs young lady is walking by and as she's walking towards me, she looks up and she locks eyes with me and she just has the biggest smile on her face. Why? Just because she saw another person. And I thought in that moment, I want to be like that, <laughs> not like that. To see the dignity, the worth of every human being you come in contact with. To see the image of God in us. Jesus is making this an intentional moment where he wants people to see the worth of this lady. When she's lived in shame and embarrassment for so long, he wants the crowd to see that she has great worth. He turns it around for her. And we have to do practical things like this too. And this is what John writes in 1 John 3, 17 to 18. He says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. We just finished a sermon series through Galatians before this. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 10? He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Sometimes you need to make a spectacle of it. 
Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and it was beautifully redemptive, every bit of it. And so the last thing, as we conclude, is Jesus gives her a command to go. It's not like, hey, if you'd like, you can go on. And he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Encountering Jesus gives us a new certainty. This is a certainty that will send us. She came trembling. She came terrified. She came shameful. And yet now he sends her in peace. In peace. You have come distressed. Come to Jesus with all of your shame, all of your anxieties, all of what is weighing you down. Come to him. He wants you to come to him with them. And then he will send you in peace with his authority. This is the same command he gave to us. It is not passive, it is missional. And the Great Commission, he says, go therefore. And he's saying, therefore, in light of the fact that he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, because he has all power, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We are to take this gospel to everyone. Everyone, everywhere. Take this gospel, go live missionally. But I have to wonder, is lostness real to us? And when I say lostness, I know that's kind of a churchy word. But the reality is we are born dead. We have inherited sin. We, we are born sinners. That means we are in defiance of God. We are dead in our sin. The enemy of God, actually. And yet God in grace, because of his love for us, has come to save us. And so when he quickens our hearts to life, he gives us this new life, he opens our eyes to see, we see him, we confess him as Lord, we turn from our sin, repenting. We trust him for salvation, confessing he is Lord. We believe in our heart that God, Jesus the Son, he has died, but he rose again victorious over death. Our salvation is in him. We live in light of that, and he says, now take it to the world. Tell everyone this is the only hope. Tell everyone about who Jesus is. But lostness is the reality that so many of the world are still dead in sin. They don't know the life that is found in Jesus. They are lost and they must be found. And we have the privilege that God has called us into. It's a privilege, it is a command, and yet it is a privilege to take this gospel to them, to tell the world this is how God has made a way to be right with him again is Jesus dying in our place, the death that you and I deserve so that we could have life everlasting with him. So do you, need, do you actually realize your own need for Jesus? Do you realize the need of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family? Do you realize how much they all need Jesus? And what will you do about that? Let's be a church that doesn't get lost in the crowd. See the individual and go to them. Share this hope. Tell them about who Jesus is. Because we are spiritually poor, we're bankrupt. We are this lady in the story. We have nothing. We've exhausted all of our own means and those of men. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. And yet when you come to Jesus with all of our shame, all of the fear of being found out, the fear of being exposed, what does Jesus do? He loves us. He saves us. And then he invites us into a story of purpose and meaning where there is no shame. We can live for his glory. So bottom line, Jesus came. Jesus is good news for the poor. Will you pray? Father, thank you.
for so many things. And so, I'm sorry, my mind is going to so many things right now. And yet, everything must come back to you. And so, Spirit, I pray that in all of my mumblings and musings and everything that you would make clear your gospel. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you, you don't just embarrass us. And you are the only one who rightly can judge us and justly give us the due consequence for our failures. And instead, you come in mercy and grace for all who put their faith in you. So God, let us all be like this woman to come in faith and to see the power of you, to want to be touched by you, to be close to you, to have a relationship with you, Jesus. And then make a spectacle of our life, please, Father. In your providence, would you make our story resound in a way that only points to you. Use us for your mission. Send us God, let us feel the weight of your power and your authority that goes into this command that we are to go. God, please don't let us be a passive church. Convict us. Shape our hearts. We don't want to be like Peter, just seeing a crowd. We want to see like you, Jesus, and see each individual and their need for you. Help us to love everyone. We're all made in your image. And so let us project that, portray that, show who you are, to the world rightly. And that is only in you, Jesus. I thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name.